0: Well, good to see all of you today, those of you that I can see. As you know, we're in uh, the book of Ephesians, which we're uh, going to be studying. It's it's going to be quite a while that we're in this. It's a rich, rich book. I would encourage you to have um, the notes that Jill sent to you out, and particularly uh, page four. And as you're getting that out or getting your Bible out or however you want to do this, let me bring up my slides here that we'll be using. Um, as you know from uh, the last time we met the um, the book of Ephesians I have put on uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I've put on PowerPoint slides. I've used this in a variety of different ways. i preached it, I've taught it. And uh, I just decided, since I put all this work into the into the slides uh, over the last several years, I've used it, as I said, in a number of sermons. Uh, some conferences I've done, as well as in teaching it, that I just share this with you. So uh, that's what I'm doing. So uh, again, if you'll look at page four of your of your outline, if you have that, if you don't, uh, that's fine. But it is really valuable to have that. I put a lot of time in putting the outlines together so it can help you. The, the structure of verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians is structured around praise him to God. And what is unique about verses 3 through 14 is it's a praise hymn that segments out the the three members of the Trinity. And so, again, if you look at that, and we're going to really take a look at the slide and take it all apart, verses 4 through 6 is a praise to the Father. And you will see there are two primary reasons why Paul is calling on us to praise the Father. Then verses 7 through 12 is a praise to the Son. And again, as with the Father, there are two primary reasons why we praise the Son. And then verses 13 and 14 closes out the praise hymn. It's praise to the Holy Spirit. And with the previous two, there are two reasons to praise the Holy Spirit. So you can see that this is a highly structured, well-organized praise hymn to God but I'll repeat it what is unique about this is it is specifically praying to the members of the trinity father son and spirit and finally as i believe i said last week in the greek language these verses 7 through uh, 3 through 14 <clears throat> excuse me is one long sentence in the greek language it's really incredible <laughs> uh i think i may have mentioned this but i, I don't recall but when I was in graduate school, and I took four years of Greek and three years of Hebrew, but I had to diagram these sentences in Greek. And I mean, that is just about impossible to diagram. At least I found that impossible. I'm not that smart. So, some of the guys just poured enormous amounts of time into it, because this is a unique passage of Scripture. So, if you have the structure of it, which i provided for you in the notes, and you have in front of you the slide which which we're going to study now. I want to take apart each part of the praise hymn, and then when we're all done, I'm going to put it back together again. So, we read some of this last week, but if you look at verse 1 again, blessed be—and that particular term, blessed, you could translate praise, blessed or praise be the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, before we look at at the the second part of of verse 3, I want you to observe, and I believe we talked about this last week, that little phrase, in Christ. That's one of those phrases that you, you ought to circle or underline in your Bible or make a note of it somewhere. It is strategically important in the New Testament. It's used 242 times in the New Testament. And it is used, it's a prepositional phrase, but it's used to describe that circle or that sphere of blessing. There are 33 things that happen to you the moment you put your faith in Christ. All of those are in that circle. So, in Christ is a way that Paul, and Paul's the main one who uses that phrase in his 13 letters, he's describing that sphere or that circle of blessing, of security, of safety. It defines all of the elements of what it means to be justified by faith, to be in the family of God, to be a new creature in Christ—all of those different phrases that are used to define and explain what in Christ means. So, who has blessed us in Christ, that's the sphere of our blessing. And in what sense? And again, the, the language that is in the original Greek as we bring it into English it's almost impossible to, to really fill out the richness of this meaning. So let me try to do that. Who has blessed us in Christ with every conceivable spiritual blessing and literally in the heavenlies. We usually, and they have done it here in the ESV translation, which is the one I read from, in the heavenly places. So it, it's, it's not hyperbole, it's not exaggerated language. Paul is about to itemize six of those spiritual blessings—two associated with the Father, two associated with the Son, two associated with the Holy Spirit. And so it's it's quite a marvelous introduction to appraise him. Why are we praising God? Because in Christ, we have every conceivable spiritual blessing sourced in God— who's enthroned in the heavens. And so, what He does now, and I've done this here on the slide, and you can see it corresponds with the outline in your notes. First of all, He praises the Father. Now, I want to read these verses that are associated with the Father, verses 4 through 6. Even as He—and that is referring to the Father—chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, which is a reference to the Son. All right, let's go back. Can we itemize it out? Can we discern, can we figure out what the two blessings are? Well, there are two. He chose us, and He predestined us. Now, each one of those needs a great deal of explanation, but you have the picture here in the heavenlies, in the throne room of God, if you will, the Heavenly Father exercising His divine, sovereign, providential will, He chose us. Now, that creates some controversy. That's a bit provocative. But literally, by the way, in the Greek language, the, the term that's translated chose is eklektos. We get our word election from that. I know that's controversial. That has all kinds of tension doctrinally that's associated with it, but you could literally translate that. He elected us. That's what the Greek word really is, eklektos. He elected us. He chose us in Him. Who's the Him? In Christ, in Him. He chose us in Him. When did He make that choice? Before the foundation of the world. Now listen, I want to make sure and kind of review some things with you here. If you've been around me very long, you will remember that I use the analogy of a railroad track. And that railroad track, as a matter of fact, I'm going to uh, I'm going to go forward here for just a little bit. I have some of this on some slides. Let me just, I'm going forward here. Take a look at this slide because the, if you remember my analogy of railroad tracks, and if we were in the first national building, i draw it on the board, but now I have it on a slide. Look at the railroad tracks. The right-hand side of the track is divine sovereignty. The left-hand side of the track, is human responsibility, responsible freedom. In the passage we're studying, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, which part of the railroad track is Paul focusing on? Right. The right-hand right side. side. Thank you. I think that was Woody who answered. That's correct. Paul is not ignoring the human responsibility, the the responsible freedom. I don't like to use the word free will because it's not in the Bible, but responsible freedom. He's not dealing with that. He's not ignoring it. He's just not dealing with it. So, Paul is saying, we need to praise the Heavenly Father because He chose us. If you want to take the literal word, He elected us. Now, again, the, the the railroad track analogy preserves the tension between the freedom of the human being and the sovereignty of God. As you, when, when you and I are walking a railroad track today, if you walk somewhere where there's a Union Pacific railroad track, you look up at the horizon, it looks like the tracks come together. But as long as you're walking, it's parallel. And so perhaps in eternity... When these two things come together, we'll understand the dynamic of that tension. But as long as we're walking this path of life now, we're going to have the tension. And so what Paul is doing, as we go back now to Ephesians chapter 3, verse uh, verse 1, verses 4 through 6, his focus, again, use the analogy, his focus is on the right-hand side of the railroad track. He's not ignoring the left-hand side. That'll come up later in the book. But he's stressing, you and I owe the spiritual blessings that he's itemizing to what the Heavenly Father did in choosing us. And it is so fascinating. Paul does not bring this issue up of choosing and predestination to create controversy. He brings it up for what purpose? You see that in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. So however you look at the doctrine of election and predestination, it is to cause not controversy. It's to cause praise and worship. And that's what Paul is stressing to these Ephesian believers. Before the foundation of the world, God knew about you, God loved you, and God chose you. Now, that's the focus of the right-hand side of the railroad track. It's not ignoring the left-hand side, but it's stressing the right-hand side. And for the Apostle Paul, who wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is to cause us to praise God. And so it, it is a marvelous thing to think about. Let's keep the focus on the positive, because he tells us, that in eternity, before the foundation of the world, in eternity, He knew you. Now, just think about that for a minute. Meditate upon that for a minute. That's what Paul's declaring. There's no ambiguity here. There's no lack of clarity here. This is how wondrous the grace of our God is, because he tells us in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. God's grace is beyond human comprehension. God's grace is beyond human imagination. That before the foundation of the world, in His grace, He chose me. If you put your faith in Christ, He chose you. And that becomes an incredible reason to praise God. That's how important I am to God. That's how magnificent and awesome And all-encompassing His grace is. But would you notice something else about verse 4? There's a purpose clause there. He chose us before the foundation of the world for this purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So that choice has a purpose to it. And how are you made holy? How are you made blameless? Well, Paul's favorite word, you're justified. That's the whole thesis of the book of Romans. You have put your faith in Christ. You have been declared righteous. You're blameless. Why? Because the righteousness of Jesus is now your righteousness. He has put this to your account. He has made you, declared you to be righteous in his eyes. And so when he sees Jim Eckman, when God looks at Jim Eckman, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's why I'm acceptable to him. That's why I can walk in fellowship and intimacy with him, just like each one of you, if you put your faith in Christ. So the first striking, staggering, almost truly unbelievable in the meaning, real meaning of that overused word, is that God, in His grace, chose me. God in His grace chose me that I would be holy and righteous in His eyes, which is the result of justification by faith. And so you you have just—this just extraordinary. You think about this, and your head just shakes with, with incredible, unbelievable understanding of not only the sovereignty of God, which it does reflect, but the grace of God. I owe him everything because he chose me. That's how important I am. Now, again, I'm not ignoring, and Paul isn't ignoring the left-hand side of the railroad track. He's just stressing
1: that side of it. All right? You with me? Jim, I had a question on Matthew Matthew 22, 14. Uh, Many are called, but few are chosen. How does that uh, interface with this uh, portion of scripture. <clears throat> well, the call uh, you're you're opening
0: a, a theological question there that is an immense bunny trail. So I'll try to to keep it as simple as I can so we can stay yeah. on task here. But that is stating a simple fact that God offers the salvation, the call of salvation, the gift of salvation. Whatever you want to, however you want to put that to all people, but and this is where the tension is. But those who respond to that call are those whom God has chosen. See Ephesians chapter one, verse four, which we've just studied. And again, uh, in 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 that verse, which you're quoting from the Gospel according to Matthew. What, what is in that verse is the tension of the railroad tracks. You have the left-hand side of the railroad track. There's the calling. Everyone has a chance to respond to the revelation of God in creation, in conscience, in God's moral law, and in Jesus. You've heard me talk about this many times in our class. There are four main ways in which God has revealed himself. Every one of them has revelation that is adequate to respond and to begin the process of God sending more and more revelation till you understand what God's doing through Jesus Christ. And so everyone is called. Everyone has the same revelation to respond to ultimately in life. But those who respond are those who have been chosen. See Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. And again, it's, that's the tension but you got to keep the railroad track. Both are true, and that the tension that you and I have as finite human beings is trying to to resolve that tension. I'm telling you right now, I studied this for 37 years, you're not going to resolve the tension. You're never going to resolve it. You're always going to have tension with this, but that's okay, because you're finite, God's infinite. You're temporal, God's eternal. God's got it under control. And I'm assuming when we get to eternity, we're going to have a semblance of understanding. So, Fred, that's as far as I can go with your question. Any other questions on verse
2: 4? I have have one. Yep. I'd like you to talk a little more about the adoption process.
0: We're going to get to that. That's verse 5.
2: Yeah, I know. I just didn't want, because I've always understood this is a process through adoption. The free will comes in if I choose not to be adopted. I don't know if you like that phrasing. I kind of
0: wrote out uh, the railroad track idea. (laughs) Well, let me address verse 5, and maybe I can answer what you're saying in your question as I go through verse 5. So with verse 4, focusing on God's choosing, right-hand side of the railroad track, Verse, the end of verse four into verse five, in love, and that's the right way to, the, the ESV has done that correctly. In love, that modifies, that phrase modifies predestination. In love, he predestined us. Now, let's take a look at the word, it's a, it's a verb here, predestined, if you make it a noun, predestination. What does that mean? Well, it's not really difficult, but to predetermine our destiny. So, election is a choice. Predestined is, because of that choice, there is a certain destiny that follows that choice. And that destiny is to be adopted. The Greek word is spiophysia. It is to be adopted into the family of God. We are not born into the human uh, into the family of God. We're born into the human family. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And at first, Nicodemus doesn't understand it. He's thinking of some gynecological absurdity. He's got to go back into his mother's womb as an old man to be born again. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand it. It's exactly what Ezekiel's talking about in Ezekiel 36 and 37. You have to be spiritually remade, spiritually reborn. You have to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, one of the 33 things that happens to you is you are placed in the family of God. And the the only right word to use is you're adopted, because you're not born into that family. You are adopted into that family. Now, let me explain something to you here in terms of the context. Paul wrote this in the first century to a significant Greco-Roman city, the city of Ephesus. It was a very familiar legal process to adopt a son. Um, It happened a lot, and it could be because of some significant act or some significant um, achievement— in someone's life, you choose to adopt that child, and you adopt that child becomes your family. And that child, that son, is now is privileged to all the rights and all the responsibilities with being in your family. If you have ever seen, let me illustrate this another way. If you've ever seen the movie Ben Hur or read the book by by uh, uh, Lou Wallace on Ben Hur, because originally a book, but if you if you read it or you've seen the movie, you remember that as a result of a bunch of trumped-up charges, Ben-Hur becomes a slave on a galley ship of a warship of the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean uh, Sea. And that warship is rammed, he gets free, and what does he do? He saves a Roman proconsul. And because of that heroic act, that Roman proconsul takes Ben-Hur back to Rome, and in the public forum, adopts him as his son, And so Ben-Hur, who was a a Jew who became a galley slave on a warship in the Mediterranean Sea, all of a sudden is the son, adopted as the son of one of the most powerful men in the Roman Empire at that time. And he inherits all the wealth, the rights, and the privileges. He inherits his signet ring. And so that's an image, in a sense. That's why I think Lou Wallace did it that way in his book, because Lew Wallace was a Christian. He wants you to see—that's what happens to a believer— Before you come to Christ, you're a slave to sin. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're now a joint heir with Christ. You're adopted into God's family. And everything Jesus is going to inherit when He rules and reigns in His kingdom from Jerusalem, you and I will inherit. That's why Paul says and Peter says, we are joint heirs with Christ. That's one of the effects of being adopted into God's family. So what Paul is saying here is, as a result of God's choice, going with that, a a key result of that is that we are adopted into God's family, and that was our destiny. With His choice, our destiny is predetermined. Now, Bill, you are correct. The left-hand side of the railroad track is you have to accept God's gift. You have to accept His gracious gift in Jesus. If you don't accept that gracious gift, you will never be placed in the family of God. What Paul is doing is just zeroing in on the right-hand side of the railroad track, to use my analogy, the right-hand side of the railroad track. This is what God has done. He chose you, and He predetermined your destiny. To be in His family, and to be in His family is to experience All of those blessings, those rights, those privileges, including, at least for me, the most unimaginable blessing of being a joint heir with Christ. That is an unimaginable thought to me. That one day, if you've trusted Christ, you will be too. One day, we are going to rule and reign with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, we are going to rule over the angels. We're going to have authority over the angels. That's how important we are to God and this is all that the plan of salvation that was set by God is is, is involved. It involves all of this. but Paul is now dealing with in, in, in verse five particularly, the results of God's choice and therefore the results for you and me when we put our faith in his in his Son. And so that that concept of adoption, was a familiar one in the ancient world. It is a somewhat familiar one in the modern world, but it's a profound concept. We are not born in the family of God. When we put our faith in His Son, we become members of the family, and the only word that captures that is we're adopted into the family of God. Jim, I, uh... and I have two children, and both of our children are adopted. And we, when we, our kids were very young, we started to explain. We, we told them they were adopted right away. And we said, Mommy and Daddy are adopted into God's family, too. We're adopted. And you're adopted into our family. And our, our priority is that you also will be adopted into God's family. But you have to put your faith in Jesus. And so, I mean, they eventually both did that. But it's a fantastic way of describing the amazing grace of God he chose us, predetermined our destiny to be adopted into His family, and you'll notice the end of verse four, according to verse five. Excuse me, according to the purpose of His will. God designed all this. God laid all this out. Quite frankly, you and I have nothing to do with it, except to put our faith in Him. Jim, this is Woody. Yes.
2: Uh, kind of like God had his eye on us uh, from the very beginning, and he at some point offers to adopt us. And and if we accept that adoption, we become his son.
0: Is that kind of like it works? Yeah, I would back it up, though, one step, Woody. He's not necessarily... And and, and, um, although it is a part of the the gospel message, what he's doing is he's offering us the solution to our struggle with sin, which is a salvation that's offered in Christ. And then one of the results of that is, I mean, you're correct, but one of the results of that is you're now adopted into his family. You become a part of his family. And so it's uh, adoption into God's family is one of the 33 things that happens to you when you put your faith in Christ. And I regard it as one of the most quite marvelous results of being, uh, of putting my faith in Christ. That is why, and I think you've heard me say this before, but because we're adopted into God's family, that's why we have the right to call our, 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 our Father in heaven, our Heavenly Father. Indeed, as Jesus did in Mark 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane, to call Him Daddy, Abba. Which is a really significant term of intimacy. And so these are extraordinary truths that Paul is laying out here in these two verses. I mean, this is almost, at least it is for me. I don't know how you guys, I've studied this for years and years and years. I'm still, this is mind boggling to me. For me to think like this, this is what God has done for me. I had nothing to do with this. I didn't lay this out. God laid this out in his grace. And that's why he exclaims in verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace. This plan that God, that Paul is summarizing in verses 4 and 5, this plan is is God's grace. No human being deserves this. No human being merits this. But God offers it. The the right-hand side of the railroad tracks is he chose you. He predestined I, you to this,
1: this this wonderful destiny of being His family. Jim, I have a question, too. Here, at, you know, we can understand here on earth what Christ has done for us on the cross. And then this is another, uh, it's a heavenly realm thing that, you know, when, when we pass from this life, we are in heaven. And um, it seems like to me that perhaps, I don't know what your thought is as you think about this, But I guess when we get there, it's going to be something that we can better assimilate and understand and appreciate than here where we are now on earth. Do you think, I mean, how does that work for our thinking based on what you've thought, thought about it? Well,
0: our challenge is there are two main challenges for all of us as human beings, even when we put our faith in Christ, or, and we're in that process of being sanctified. First of all, we're still finite. I mean, that I, it's not a criticism, that's a reality. We're finite, and the word finite means we're limited. We're limited to just, you know, our perspective on things as human beings. The second issue is what theologians call the noetic effect of sin. Sin affects how we think. And it's therefore difficult for us to think about this accurately, holistically, and completely. Now, I believe the more we walk with the Lord and the longer we're with the Lord, the more we come to understand the enormity of what God has done for us. So try to—and that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul will exclaim that because of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you have the mind of Christ. You have God's perspective on things. You're beginning to think like God, not in an not in an omniscient, exhaustive way. We'll never be omniscient, but we're beginning to see and understand things the way God sees and understands things. And this, this little passage of these two verses is one of those. This is difficult to think through. Again, he's focusing just on the right-hand side of the road. But this is really difficult to think through. But you have to accept what Paul is declaring. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. And so in my finite mind, I really struggle with it. I believe it. I praise God for that, but that is the enormity of that. And then to add to that, as a part of his choice, when I put my faith in his son, he has predetermined my destiny. What is the the, the point of that? That I'll be in his family. I'll be adopted into his family with all the rights and privileges that go with that. So when we are in heaven, when we no longer are limited by our fallen bodies, by the the sin that still affects our mind, when all that's gone, I do believe we're going to have a deeper understanding of what all this means.
2: Jim, this is John Nelson. I have a question.
0: Yes, please.
2: there's a basic premise here I'm not clear on. In in verse number three, right at the beginning, Paul says, We, us, our have been chosen. Is he referring to all of mankind that everybody is no,
0: no. born? He's uh, referring he's referring to, and you go back to verse one and verse two, the prologue, but he's referring to believers those who have put their faith in Christ.
2: Well, okay.
0: um, So, now let me finish my thought then. Go ahead. What he does then, he announces the the us and our and we, every spiritual blessing. In verse 4 through verse 14, he begins to explain what those spiritual blessings are for those, for the us, for the we, for the our, for those who are Christians. For those who are believers
2: well if he's if he's talking about believers then um, who turns an individual into a believer mm-hmm. i mean so that they they qualify for all of these blessings and everything um, is that through the the holy spirit i mean here we have millions of people and there are a portion of those who are going to believe, and this is who he's referring to, right?
0: Yes, and the way the way you're asking the question, there's no other way I can answer it except yes. Now, John, you 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 muted yourself. I can't hear Sorry.
2: you. Sorry. Is he in the foundation of the world? at that time, choosing those persons who are going to become believers?
0: That's correct. That's the right-hand side of the railroad track.
2: Right. Thank you.
0: You bet. All right. It's 20 minutes after 12, and we've done two verses. That's okay. This is a very rich passage. Let's look at verse 6, really the very end of verse 6, and seven through eleven. Okay. Was there a question? Yes. Uh, before
1: uh, before we travel on, at the end of verse four, holy and blameless before Him. When when is when when is that that, uh, that we become holy and blameless before Him?
0: Uh, that we should be holy and blameless. Okay. That that is the result. That's defining justification before Him would be for God before the Heavenly Father. Why, Why can you and I stand holy and blameless? Why can you and I face God holy and blameless? Because of Jesus. Because we've been justified. So in a very real sense, I mean, Fred, you're asking a great question there, because that little phrase before him is in effect. When you stand before God, what gives you the right to have an intimate fellowship an intimate personal identity with the God of the universe? Answer, because I put my faith in Christ, I have been justified. Again, Paul's whole focus here is on the right-hand side of the railroad track, but the left-hand side of the railroad track is we put our faith in Christ, His finished work, and all He's done for us. And Paul is just describing what does the right-hand side of the railroad track look like? This is what God has done, and as a result of that, when you appropriate all that by faith, you can stand before God as holy and righteous, which is another way of saying the consequence of justification. Does that—I mean, you're just—you're asking a great question, but I, I, I hope that that's clear. Let's take a look then. Notice the little clause at the end of verse 6, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, the Beloved is one of the titles of Jesus. It's, there are a number of places you see that, especially in the Gospel of John. So it's referring to the Son. So verse 7, in Him—in who? In the Beloved, in the Son, we have redemption through His blood. Now, if you're looking at your outline, you have the, the work of the Son, praise to the Son. And there are specific reasons. There are two reasons to praise the Son. The first reason, and that's why I put in blue in brackets a number one, the redemption that we have. Now, the Greek word for redemption means we have been purchased. We have been bought. The word was used in the Greco-Roman world of buying someone out of the marketplace. And you paid a price for that. All right. You and I have been redeemed. We've been bought. Our freedom has been bought. What was the price paid? The shed blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That was the price. And that's why this is a fantastic word. Again, that's one of the 33 things that happens. We are redeemed. We've been purchased. We've, our freedom has been bought. Our freedom from what? Our freedom from sin. Our freedom from bondage to sin the enslavement to sin, which characterized our lives before we put our faith in Christ. Jesus has bought us out of the marketplace of sin, if you want to push the analogy. And what was the price He paid? He shed His blood. That's why the cross is so important, because the cross is where Jesus—I mean, you know all this, but we're about to celebrate it in a short while with Easter and all that. But that that shedding of his blood, the reason that's so important is that's the price that was paid to free us from our sin. And of course it takes you back to the Old Testament sacrifices. You, you, one thinks of of the of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement where the lambs were offered, their blood was shed, and the atonement, the covering of sin. Well, the difference between what Jesus did and what was the annual uh, event of of ancient Israel is Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. He's not re-sacrificed over and over and over over again. It's once, cross at Calvary. And so, this, this summary in just redemption through His blood, boy, that captures so much of what happened on the cross. And so, Jesus bought your freedom. That's why in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Paul says, you were bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You belong to the Son of God, in effect. And that means now we have been redeemed. We're freed. That's the whole thesis of Romans chapter 6. We've been freed from the enslavement and bondage to sin into the marvelous blessings of being in the family of God. But he's not done there. He says your redemption through his blood, which results in what? the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's an element. It's not only, but it's an element of justification. We've been forgiven. We've been acquitted of our trespasses. And the Greek word, there are three Greek words for sin in the New Testament. Correctly, the ESV translators have translated trespasses. The word trespass means you have missed the mark of God's perfect law. And because we've missed the mark of God's perfect perfect law, someone, someone has to take care of that for us. And that someone is big capital S. It's Jesus. And in His shed blood in the cross, which bought the price of our freedom, resulted in us in being stamped by the Heavenly Father across your life, forgiven. And that means God holds nothing against you. God holds nothing. I remember reading a pastor's wife was struggling with some things that she had done, and she says, Lord, do you remember that I, what I did? God says, no, I'm sorry, I don't remember that. And it went on and on and on, and it finally was drilled home to her. That's what forgiveness means. God has forgiven me of all my sin because of His Son who redeemed me. So the consequence of redemption the consequence of being freed by the price of Christ's shed blood is now forgiveness. God holds nothing against you in terms of your past debt to sin. And as Paul says here, according to the riches of His grace, this exemplifies this manifests extraordinarily the grace of God. Do we deserve this? No. Did we earn it? No. Did we work for it? No. Did we merit it? No. We appropriate it by faith plus nothing else. That's grace. But I love what he does in verse 8. According to the rich, what God did in this plan of redemption, which results in the forgiveness and a new standing before God, is his grace. But notice what he says, which he lavished upon us. That's a fantastic translation. He lavished upon us. I mean, it's a super abundant pouring out of God's grace upon us with all wisdom and insight, making known to—now, he's moving into a second thought now. But before I move into that second thought of Paul's, Do you understand the first reason we praise the Son? He bought us. He paid the price for us, which results in us being forgiven. Got it? Now let's move into the second reason we praise the Son. This is a little more difficult. So let me read through through the beginning uh, of, of verse, tw- uh, I'm going to really read just through eleven. Verse twelve fits too, but I want to stop at, at eleven. So let's let's look at the end of verse. Well, let's look at verse eight and read through verse eleven, which lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, or with all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. Now, let me stop there before we look at verse 11. Now, that this language is hard, and it's even a little more difficult to translate and bring into English. So, the grace which he lavished upon us, with all wisdom and insight, he's made known to us something." He's made known to us. He's revealed to us. He's enabled us to understand something. What is that something? It's the mystery of His will. Now the word mystery, and this is a real challenge, because mystery is just transliterating. You're bringing a word from the Greek into English letter for letter. The Greek word is musterion. The English word is mystery. Part of the challenge of that is that doesn't help us understand what He means by that. So, let me do it this way. Let me paraphrase this. Let me embellish this a little bit. With wisdom and insight, He's made known to us. He's revealed to us something that was not known in the Old Testament. He's revealed to us truth that now is being made known, and it's all centered in Jesus. What is that? What is now being revealed? What part of, of God's will is now being revealed? Well, this now is the second reason. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, what is he set forth in Christ? To unite everything around Jesus, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in the fullness of time, at the right moment at the precise right moment in human history, God sent His Son to begin the process of putting down the rebellion on this planet, of reconciling everything to the Father through the finished work of Christ. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians 4.4. This is what Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1. This is what Paul talks about at the end of Romans chapter 8. It is Jesus who's going to end the rebellion and who's going to reconcile everything to God. This planet is in rebellion. Genesis 3 makes clear that there's a curse upon this planet. In Romans 8, Paul says all of creation groans for the final redemption, the return of Jesus Christ, because that's when everything's going to be made right. There'll be no more dandelions in heaven. There'll be no more squirrels running around stealing your wife's food or digging holes in your ground in the fall, burying nuts that they never, ever recover again, that blossom into maple trees and oak trees throughout your yard. I'm being a little facetious, but this—all the things that accompanied the fall of the human race in Genesis 3 that resulted in a curse are going to be undone, and it is Jesus— who's going to do it. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's a cosmic nature to the plan of God's redemption. Everything's going to be made new. That's why at the end of Revelation chapter 21, 22, in Isaiah 65 and 66, a phrase is used, the new heavens and the new earth. God is going to remake everything. He's going to cleanse everything from sin, He's going to remake everything. And, and that is, is a fantastic way of putting it, because in this plan, this plan is, that's why I put there in, 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 the, in the blue, that is to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. The rebellion will be over, the curse will be lifted, and everything will be united and reconciled to God. That's part of the redemptive plan. That's the cosmic nature of the redemptive plan. So why do we praise Jesus? First of all, we praise Jesus, the Son, because He redeemed us. He bought us. He purchased our freedom from sin. And second, it is in Christ that the final plan of God is worked out and finalized. And you and I are going to be a part of it, because that's the kingdom of God coming to earth— As we mentioned a little earlier, we're going to be joint heirs with Christ. We're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ as he remakes everything, undoes the curse. And so the more you get into this, the more exciting it becomes. Because Paul is, in short, bang, 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 pithy statements, he's summarizing what God is doing in this marvelous redemptive plan. And you just get, oh, my goodness. I mean, the human words just fail us. And say, oh, my, what God is doing through Christ. And so he then ends this discussion. In him, remember, in him is Christ, that sphere of blessing. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined, same word that's used up in verse 5, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of, will, of his will. So a part of that predetermining destiny is you and I are going to be a part of this. You and I are going to be a part of all this stuff being worked out, And 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 it's this this fantastic, unbelievable, unimaginable promise. As Jesus remakes everything in his coming kingdom, you and I are going to be a part of it. And he chooses a word. It's in verse 11, inheritance. This is part of being adopted into the family of God. This is one of the results of adoption. Peggy and I have a will And our will, among other things, lays out the enormous estate that Peggy and I have is going to be divided up among our children and other charities and things like this. And I'm being facetious. It isn't that big. But so that's inheritance. Our kids have an inheritance. It's a promise. The promise God has made to you, your inheritance, is you're going to be a part of this plan. You're going to be a part of this purpose that's centered in Jesus. I know you don't get excited about biblical truth in this Bible study, but that's one of the things to be excited about. Oh, man! You mean that's a part of my destiny? Yes, it is. And it's everything in another passage of Scripture, Paul writes, everything is summed up in Jesus. You and I are going to be a part of that. That's our inheritance. That's part of what the Father has promised to us as His children. And so, verse, uh, verse 7 through into the beginning of verse 12 is the focus on the sun. Now, we still have the third person of the Trinity, which is verse 13 and 14, and it's 20 minutes of one. So, the fact that it's taking so long for me to go through all this is all your fault. You've been asking too minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I'm so glad you've had great questions. But well, I'd like to
1: ask another question then, Jim. Yeah. Uh, it says, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time, and that uh, smacks of the last days and the fullness of time, as, as I'm understanding it, and, and I'd like you to weigh in on your thoughts on this, um, then when Christ comes, uh, then and he's crucified and resurrected. We are now in the last days, I think we've said in the past. And then everything is, is full, but he tarries because he's not willing that any should perish. Is that kind of what he's saying here wrapped up, or what's your interpretation of those two lines? No, like? I I don't
0: I don't think it's specifically focusing on that in, in, in a sense. It's That word—you're reading from the New American Standard, uh, what I have on the slide here is ESV. They chose the word plan instead of administration. Now, the word that uh, NASB is translating administration and what ESV is translating plan is oikonomea. We got our word economy from that. It's stewardship. It's a stewardship plan. God is a good steward, and God is a good steward over His creation— He is not going to allow His creation to self-destruct. So His oikonomea, His plan, His administrative authority is that at the right moment, He's going to undo the curse. He's going to unite everything in heaven and everything on earth to Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's talking about lifting the curse on everything that you see itemized for us in Genesis chapter 3. So this is not so much the oikonomia here, the plan, the administrative uh, uh, plan of God, is not so much the plan of salvation, it's the consequence of the plan of salvation. It's undoing the curse. That's what, to unite all things in Him, heaven and earth, you see it in Colossians 1, you see it in Romans 8, it's undoing the curse. That's that cosmic effect of God's redemptive plan. And, that, and the amazing fact about that is that as God undoes all, undoes all that, you and I are a part of it. That's our inheritance. That's part of what it means to be ruling and reigning with Christ, to be a joint heir with Christ. Uh, and again, it's taken us back to those, those quite wonderful results of being adopted into the family of God. And all of this, and this, the language of this is absolutely amazing to study it in the original language. Because he is using these words and terms. Each one has rich meaning to it. And to bring it into English just doesn't completely cut it all. And that's why I'm trying to do the best I possibly can to flesh out all the meanings of these quite wonderful words. All right, what time is it? Uh, Let me just, we're not going to be able to do this because we're almost out of time. But if you look at verse 13, and then into verse 14. You see the end of verse 12, to the praise of His glory. That's closing out the material in the Son. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, and then He explained the gospel of your salvation, when you responded to the gospel and believed in Him, something happened to you. Here's one of the 33 things that happens to you. One thing is you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now that, that is in itself, that word sealed in itself is absolutely incredible. It it is impossible to capture the full meaning of that in English. So let me give a shot at it in two minutes, and then we'll pick up with the rest of it next Wednesday. In the ancient world, every document every important communique, indeed even packages that were sent. You would, if you were a person of authority like a Caesar or a governor or even an administrative official, you put your seal on that. That guaranteed security, that guaranteed protection, that guaranteed safety. It was a capital offense in the Roman Empire to break a seal, unless you're the one to whom it was addressed. So, what that means is when the Holy Spirit seals you, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're now sealed. That is an indicator of a place of protection, a place of security, a place of safety, and one more thought a place of ownership. You are now owned by God. You are safe, you're secure you're protected. So that's a marvelous thought that the Holy Spirit has sealed me. I now have the seal of God's protection, the seal of God's ownership, the seal of God's safety, the seal of God's security stamped over me. I belong to God, and no one can take that away. Now, again, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth, but that's one of those thoughts that should cause some of you, quietly, silently, don't let anybody hear it, to just say amen. Because it's just an, an unimaginable thought, that not only has he chosen me, predetermined my destiny, bought me and purchased me, freed me from the bondage of sin, making him part of bringing everything to a conclusion, as it's summed up in Christ, he sealed me. I belong to Him. I have the mark of His ownership on me, and it's the Holy Spirit who indwells you. You're the new temple of the living God. You belong to Him, and the Spirit is your seal of protection, of ownership, of safety and security. Now, I'm past our time here, but I, I, I told you when we started this last week, and now we've spent a whole hour on it, this is one of, this is one of the richest passages in the entire Bible, I mean, it really is. It's one of the richest passages in the entire Bible on God is Trinity and what each member of the Trinity has done for you and me, their role and responsibility. I want to talk more next week when we finish the Holy Spirit. I want to show you some diagrams. I'm going to send them to Joel uh, for him to distribute for next week's class for you to look at and have a copy of it as well. There's some diagrams that are put together to sum all this up and explain it in a couple of charts. And your, your, your job then, your responsibility is to memorize that. Then I'm going to give you a blank chart, and you have to fill it all in. Now, those last two sentences are not true, but I just wanted you to sort of see how important it is. But I'll send those out for Joel to distribute to you, so you'll have a copy when we're going through it next week. So we'll finish this next week, and we'll look at some doctrinal issues that go with this and tie it all together with some charts, all right? Good. Thank you, Jim. All right. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, these are these are just tremendous truths. <laughs> this is a fantastic passage of Scripture, and it's it's filled with rich teaching and rich truth. These verses are talking about each one of us. If we put our faith in Christ, these verses are talking about us, each one of us. You could put our we could put our names in those. This is how important we are to you, Lord. This is absolutely awesome truth. Now, so our response is the response Paul encourages us to the praise of the glory of His grace. We don't deserve any of this. We don't earn it. We don't merit it, but you offer it to us. And using the analogy of the left-hand side of the road of track, when we put our faith in Christ, and we we, we we appropriate all that by faith, these verses describe us. This is who we are. This is our new identity. So, Lord, we just praise you and thank you for this. We, we have an exciting future. Despite everything that's happening this crazy, dysfunctional world, despite the darkness of this world, this is our inheritance. This is who we are. This, is, this defines our nature. This defines our identity. And it also explains what our future is going to look like. And it's exciting to know that this is how important you are. So I pray that each one of these men will allow these thoughts and truths to sink deeply into their heart, become a part of them, always reminding them, this is how important to God I really am. And that is one of the major conclusions and applications of this quite wonderful passage of Scripture. The Lord bless these men, I pray, help them to deepen their faith, help them to hang on tightly to you, to be strong men of faith, men of God who represent you well. We pray in Christ's name. See you next week, man. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, gentlemen.